Welcome to the Daily Dive Weekend Edition. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and every week I explore the top stories making waves in the news and some that are just plain interesting. I'll connect you with the journalists and the people who know the story and bring you news without the noise so you can make an informed decision. You can catch a new episode of The Daily Dive every Monday through Friday, and it's ready when you wake up. On the weekend edition, I'll be bringing you some of the best stories from the week. Another interesting story is that of Elon Musk unveiling plans by Neuralink to connect the human brain with AI, with the goal of possibly implanting devices in paralyzed humans, allowing them to control phones or computers. We spoke to Elizabeth Lopato, deputy editor at The Verge, who was there for Musk's presentation and will give us all the details. For those of you who are familiar with Elon Musk and his interest in AI, he's sort of nervous that AI is going to conquer us all. And my concerns about AI are a little bit different, just to give you a sense of where I'm coming from. I'm worried that it won't be very good, and that's how it will kill us. (laughs) (laughs) However, like the the work he's doing here, I think, is really interesting. So for those of you who may not know, brain-machine interfaces actually are not super new. You know, the first person with a spinal cord paralysis to receive a brain implant that allowed him to control a computer cursor was named Matthew Nagel, and uh, that paper was published in 2006. So we're looking at more than a decade of research. And what I saw last night um, were some meaningful refinements um, on technology that has already existed and that has not necessarily been combined. It it was actually a lot more reality-based than I was expecting, given some of the rhetoric that he's had around AI. So it was a pleasant surprise in in that respect. Yeah, I mean, he says that he wants to eventually make this as uh, easy, safe, and painless as LASIK eye surgery. So talk a little bit about that. What exactly is the device? I know there's these flexible threads that they would implant into the brain, and that's uh, basically what's going to help us communicate with computers. Yeah. Um, so just to give you a sense of why the threads are interesting, um, most of the, uh, the systems that have been heavily researched in people um, use a, uh, something called the Utah array, which is a series of stiff needles. Um, and I don't know if you know this, but your brain actually moves in your skull and it's probably moving right now. It moves with your heartbeat, uh, among other things. So every time your brain moves even a little, that's, that's a shift that those stiffer needles can create damage, making it hard for them to pick up signals. Uh, that's why the threads, the flexible threads are important. But the thing about the flexible threads is that they're harder to implant than the stiffer needles because you can't just, you know, pop them into the brain as you, as you might with the Utah array. So the reason the robo-surgery is used is essentially to, uh, to get the threads in. You you posted um, some pictures in your article of this machine, and I mean, it looks kind of intimidating. It's got a bunch of little microscopes that obviously has things so you can, it looks like a high-tech stitching machine. And I mean, I would be so nervous to place my head underneath that thing uh, so that it can implant these little fibers. Musk said that the main reason for doing this presentation is recruiting. I mean, who wouldn't want to work on something that could potentially change the world and how people connect with computers? It. It's very sci-fi, but it is also, you know, very forward thinking. Yeah, I mean, I think there are a lot of folks who would be interested in this. Um, uh, I saw a number of PhD students there last night. Um, so, you know, the up-and-coming scientific generation, essentially, <laughs> it was well represented. And I don't know how much you know about academics, but typically once they get tenure, it's kind of hard to pry them, <laughs> pry them away. Right. Um, and so I think probably, you know, if you're a, a younger person who is uh, working in this space, this seems like a very exciting opportunity. 
there was an interesting moment during this presentation because they had a Q&A and Elon Musk revealed that they had a monkey who was able to control a computer with its brain. Did they elaborate on that at all? No, um, I don't think he was supposed to say that, actually, the way that people reacted. <laughs> I think I think I don't know how much time you spend with scientists. But scientists are often very careful about what they're willing to reveal about experiments that they've done, because if you talk about them before you submit them to a scientific journal, it's a lot harder to get the uh, experiment published. Wow. Uh, it's so crazy. So uh, just paint the final picture for us. Years down the road, this is up and working. They say that it can connect to your cell phone and work through an app. Uh, what are we looking at? It's hard to say right now. Um, I think that the, the sort of vision that Elon has for healthy humans is pretty far off. Um, but I think for folks who experience paralysis, that might be a lot closer. So if you're disabled and this allows you um, to connect to the community, to uh, to talk to your doctor, to be a little bit more independent, that seems really promising. Um, and again, you know, I don't know that we're very close to having this be ready even for that population in a widespread way for many, many years. Yeah, they said that early experiments uh, will be done with neuroscientists at Stanford University, and they hope to have this in a human patient by the end of next year. There's going to be a lot of hurdles with the FDA and everything. I mean, mm -hmm. it, it sounds pretty crazy, but... Uh, you know, Elon Musk is, you know, known for this, these big projects and stuff. So we'll see if anything develops from this. The only thing that I would add to that is, you know, um, it's hard to predict what the FDA is going to do. I would take that um, the goal of having it in uh, a person by next year with a little bit of a grain of salt, right. because it might turn out that the FDA is like, absolutely not. You need to do all of these other tests first. But it still is um, pretty exciting to see somebody pursuing it in this way. Elizabeth Lopato, Deputy Editor at The Verge, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Let's see them aliens. This is probably my favorite story of the week, and you noticed an influx of alien memes and jokes on your social media last weekend. Well, that's because over one million people have signed on to a joke Facebook account to storm Area 51 and see what's inside. We spoke to Michael Bryce Sadler. He's a reporter for The Washington Post for how all of this got started and how the Air Force plans to respond if people actually show up. Hint, you probably shouldn't. It was intended to be a joke, and I think it is still a joke. But as you said, we're up to a million people now. The question is, you know, what contingent of those million or so people or whoever else is just curious about this, this story might actually go out there? At this point, I think it's a legitimate question to ask. Um, I think you'll probably even see some news stations out there just to see who might show up to this thing. It's really anyone's guess. But, I mean, as you said, it, it picked up a lot of steam over the weekend. I think it was probably the most read story on the Post website uh, all throughout <laughs> the weekend, which is pretty remarkable That's considering amazing. some of the other news we've had. Area 51 has been trending. It's just something I think, I think everyone has a little bit of interest. Area 51 has that mythical vibe to it, and these people, or at least a contingent of them, want to see what's out there. So who started this up? I mean, it's been gaining traction, as you said. Media's been reporting on it. I think that kind of helps blow it up. Right. So my understanding is that it was a Twitch streamer um, known for, for streaming video games who operates or works with someone who operates the meme 
uh, page on Facebook just dedicated to, to making jokes, nothing serious. And in that same vein, I believe they created this joke event and it just picked up so much steam. There was so much interest that you start to lose sight of, is this really a joke? For a long time, Area 51, quote unquote, didn't exist as far as the government was letting people know. It was just kind of this place where people thought the government was housing aliens and housing spaceships. But that was officially debunked in 2013 when the CIA confirmed it. Right. The CIA has published information since then that shows it was a flight testing ground, um, a training ground. So we know it's real at this point. But that confirmation of its existence actually provided a lot of encouragement for people who are convinced that the government is hiding something at the base. In 2017, the Pentagon confirmed the existence of a $22 million program to analyze UFOs. Even just more recently, I think the Navy proposed new guidelines for pilots and other naval members to, you know, how to report if they've seen a UFO. So all of this stuff has just been in the news recently. And, you know, it gets Mm -hmm. the UFO enthusiasts and the alien enthusiasts all riled up. You're exactly right. And I think now what you see with this event is even the people who aren't necessarily diehard alien lovers just seeing a vehicle for them to be able to to express their interest in. All right, let's see. Let's see what's out there. We wanted to speak to you specifically because the Washington Post reached out to the Air Force to get an official statement on this, and they actually did respond to you guys. So what did they say? How are they going to be handling this? So I spoke with an Air Force spokeswoman on Friday. Um, We had a pretty candid conversation. She made it clear to me they were aware of this. And I, I asked how they might respond if people showed up. That was really the angle I was going for with my story. And of course, for security reasons, she said they couldn't specifically say what security measures they have in place at the base, but she did discourage anyone from, quote, trying to come into the area where we train American armed forces. Right. And she she suggested that the Air Force is ready to protect America and its assets, unquote, for whatever that's worth. Uh, And I actually got an updated statement today from the Nellis Air Force Base which actually houses some of the land containing Area 51. And I guess it took them through the weekend to get this statement to me because I had reached out Friday. But they said something similar. We don't discuss specific security measures, but they said they're aware of the Facebook event. And they also added that any attempt to illegally access the area is highly discouraged. Yeah, I mean, there's Um, signs around the area that say that anybody who enters could be subject to deadly force. So please do not storm this facility because you just don't want to get caught up in this. This joke event is planned for September 20th. The memes are hilarious in the meantime, and I'm loving them, but you know, who knows? This is why we're doing the story. It's just so funny. That's what's happening on the internet right now. And we'll never know, you know, we'll have to wait till September to see if anybody tries to make this happen. Michael Bryce Sadler reporter for the Washington post. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. This weekend, we're also celebrating the 50th anniversary of the Apollo 11 moon landing. It was an incredible feat that hadn't been accomplished before, and it was the result of eight years of work by more than 400,000 people and cost billions of dollars. And while it was a huge achievement, there was some uncertainty that the landing would actually happen because of an error code that triggered an alarm and some worry. We spoke to Dr. Lance Elliott, contributed to Forbes for the story within the story about the Apollo 11 moon landing and error code 1202. 
what actually happened, it, most people aren't quite aware, if you listened closely to the recorded chatter between Neil, uh, Buzz, Aldrin, and Mission Control, you can hear in there something rather frightening that happened that to millions upon millions of Americans that, and, and those around the world that were listening, probably they didn't really pay much attention to because it sounded like a lot of technical jargon. And what it consisted of was that about seven and a half minutes left to go on the final descent, there appeared on the display a flashing 1202-1202 error code that also set off a blaring alarm. And you could hear the astronauts, there was kind of a moment of silence on their side, and then they asked Mission Control, it's a 1202, which really was more of a question than a statement per se, because the astronauts themselves had never seen that error code before. <laughs> In all the practices they had done, all the training that they had done, it was not an error code that had ever been purposely brought to their attention, so therefore they were mystified. 1202. 1202 alarm. The 1202. Stand by. Give us a reading on the 1202 program alarm. And you can imagine, there you are in the lunar lander doing something that no one has ever done before, and yet you're faced with an error code that you don't know what it means, and you don't know, should you take action, should you not take action, should you immediately take action, should you wait to take action, and all of it meaning that as you now are descending, something's gone awry, but you don't know what it is. And it was so bad that there was a danger that they might have scrapped the landing. Uh, by some stories that I've been seeing, there was 27 seconds that went by before anybody said anything back. And in a moment like this, so critical, as you said, it was it had never been done before. I mean, 27 seconds, it could be a lifetime right there, not knowing what to expect. Well, you're absolutely right. With those seconds that were clicking off, what kind of happened there, too, is that the astronauts said to Mission Control, hey, 1202, what's that? So they had to repeat. Now, what they had done is they had established a bunch of NASA engineers in a back room so that that way, if something came up that was unknown or unexpected, that they had a chance that those NASA engineers might either know about it or could try to figure something out. So what had happened in those seconds, precious seconds that were winding away, the NASA engineers in the back room were trying to also figure out what was going on. And fortunately, one of them had written down beforehand all the different error codes and looked on this handwritten chart that they had to see what the 1202 error code was about. Wow. That is so crazy. So these two, the, the, it was a 1202 and a 1201. They were kind of paired up together. I, I guess one was a result of the other. Tell us what these error codes were doing. I mean, how was it going to impact the impending landing? Sure. So the 1202 error code, and then you're right, there was also a 1201 error code. Both of those error codes relate essentially to the same topic, which is that the memory inside the main onboard computer that was on the lunar lander, and you have to put yourself back 50 years, this is not a equivalent of a today's laptop or smartphone, this was a fraction of that in terms of the kind of capability and the amount of memory that it had. The memory of that onboard computer, which was being used to help guide them during the landing on the moon, the memory was overfilling. Now, the 1202 or 1201 error code simply said memory is being overfilled. It didn't tell them why it was. And even the NASA engineer that knew what that error code meant, which was the memories overfilling, they didn't know either. 
But what they had done, the programmers had anticipated that someday, for some reason, which they didn't know what that would necessarily be, that the onboard computer might get too filled up in the memory. And so what they had done is they had written an automatic little routine that would kick in and do a fast reboot. So it's like rebooting your smartphone or your right. laptop, except it's a very fast way to do it. And what happened is the NASA engineer decided, well, we don't know what's causing this. We know that it's a memory being filled up, but we also know that the fast reboot generally should fix for the moment whatever the problem is. So he indicated that they should proceed with the moon landing, oh and that's gosh. then what the Capcom communicated back. They said, you're a go, meaning continue on and essentially ignore that error. It makes me so nervous just listening to this because if you know, you're working on your computer and the RAM is filled up and what happens? Everything slows down. Everything's so sluggish. And you know, I, I, that's the only thing I can think of to relate to this. The computer system is approaching to land and what's going to happen. And then to do a fast reboot, I mean, obviously the equivalents are not there, but if you turn your phone off and you turn it back on, it's going to take a little while. So even this fast reboot, I'm just nervous thinking about it, how harrowing it might have been for the astronauts there during that time. You actually spoke to Buzz Aldrin at some point and you asked him about this. Uh, yes, that's indeed the case. Buzz was making a visit to Los Angeles and I picked him up at the airport and we had lunch together and I just had to ask what was in his mind and so on. He said, of course, at first he was quite concerned. This is an error code he hadn't seen before that was blaring at him. Uh, they knew that with each second that went by that their options of what they could do about it were narrowing. Uh, so that was what was on his mind. But as soon as he got the go from or go ahead or proceed from uh, mission control, he figured, okay, I don't obviously need to think about that now. I've got a hundred other things to think about. And then when the error reoccurred, which it did a couple additional times, including the 1201 error, he just took it naturally to, to be that he should continue to just ignore the error, kind of clear out the error and continue on. Now, the twist of it is a few days later, they figured out what had caused the problem. Would you like to know what actually was the root cause of this? Yeah, of course. What happened? So what happened was the radar unit that they had on the lunar lander, which they had not really used before. Remember, we had never landed on the moon before. Well, unbeknownst to kind of everyone, the radar unit had a kind of bug or fault or error in it that what it did is it repeatedly tried to communicate with the onboard computer and say, hey, you've got to load in my software into the memory. And it did this over and over and over. It was only supposed to do it once and then just sit there in memory and be used. But because of this bug or error, it repeatedly did that. So that's why the memory then filled up. That's what generated the 1202 and the 1201 error. And that's also why they made a decision, a split second gutsy decision down there on Earth to go ahead and ignore it because they hope whatever it was, <laughs> wow. the fast reboot would quote, clear it up. That is an amazing story. And I had never seen that before, heard of that before. Dr. Lance Elliott, expert on artificial intelligence, autonomous vehicles, contributor to Forbes. Thank you very much for sharing that story with us. Thank you so much. That's it for this weekend. Be sure to check out the Daily Dive every Monday through Friday. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. 
Follow The Daily Dive on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Daily Dive has been engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this was your Daily Dive Weekend Edition.